Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Great to have you with us. Will sanctions hobble the Russian economy? What does the invasion of Ukraine mean for you as an investor if Russian stocks are on your books? Or what is its possible impact for you as a consumer of energy? Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, joins us to give us his views. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. All right, let's talk a little bit about sanctions. Uh, since Russia seized Crimea back in 2014, it looks like Western sanctions have failed to act as a credible deterrent. So today we're asking if new measures targeting Russia's financial system um, by the EU, by America and other allies could change uh, what we see from history. We know that China and Mexico have refused to impose sanctions, but even without them, will these sanctions be enough to trigger what we hope is financial mayhem in Russia because they targeted central bank and uh, could lead to the freezing of its foreign exchange reserves, which are substantial $630 billion worth. If you look at the currency, the ruble now worth less than a cent after Russian forces escalated their bombing of uh, the Ukrainian cities. But Russia also now claims to have captured the port city of Kherson. That's in southern Ukraine. So it looks like its military action is gaining traction. And that is tempering some hope that people had that the Ukraine resistance would be able uh, to put up a sustained uh, defense, so to speak. So again, back in if we look at history, what we see is that sanctions imposed on Russia in 2014, back when Vladimir Putin annexed the Crimean region of Ukraine, they didn't really bite. They didn't act as credible deterrence. Russia did not back down on its annexation. What can we read today? How effective will sanctions on Russia be? And what impact could that have on global markets? Yeah, I mean, I think, Michelle, this time around, the sanctions are basically the financial equivalent of going nuclear against Russia. I mean, in two fronts, right? One point that you highlighted is freezing of the central bank asset, which is huge. I mean, it's like close to $650 billion equivalent of in various currencies invested into, uh, you know, the corresponding uh, currencies, sovereign bonds or uh, short-dated sovereign bonds. Freezing that is just locking in any chance the central bank had is trying to control further depreciation of the ruble against the USD. And yes, it's already depreciated like 40-50%, but these are extremely illiquid markets right now, right? Like if anyone wants a true exit or putting on a position in that space, it's going to be impossible. Mm. You couple that with the fact that they've been locked out of SWIFT. Mm. And that is, you know, literally like a doomsday scenario for any financial institution of any country, mm. leave alone if all the financial institutions or most of them, at least within Russia, have been blocked out. SWIFT is basically this mechanism with which financial institutions across borders can transfer money, confirm that everything is kosher. Uh, it's basically the, you know, the like the flowing of money from one place to the other overnight. That's how SWIFT manages its actions. And with them being clamped down on that, it's financial Armageddon. I mean, we can see it like Spurbank, right, which has been listed in uh, LSE, the London Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. It's down 99%, right? So it's a complete collapse of the financial ecosystem. Does that, in a weird way, does that sadly mean that Russia will even go more aggressive on the military front against Ukraine? Sadly, yes. I mean, Putin is basically caught painted himself into a corner, right? He has no choice 
to get out of this. I mean, if he retreats, everything back home in Russia, it is like his entire thing will collapse. It's not like these sanctions will be lifted immediately either. Mm. So the only way, the only way for him to salvage anything, and by no means am I a military strategist or anything like that, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't like, you know, rationally thinking about this, he doesn't have any other choice other than to ensure that at least he militarily or physically can defeat Ukraine and then try to come back onto the negotiation table to see what can be salvaged out of the situation. But as of now, I think the sanctions imposed currently is completely different from the annexation of Crimea region. This is going to really, really hurt the economy. Maybe not so much the world, given mm. the relatively small you know, percentage of GDP uh, Russia has to it, but definitely from the perspective of the economy within the country, it just like there are horror stories already coming out. It's only been a couple of days. Yeah, stocks falling, energy commodity prices spiking, investors moving to safe haven assets like U.S. bonds. Um, but yes, I was interested in, in seeing that Russia only contributes to figure changes depending on which source you look at, but something like 2 to 3% of global GDP. So you think that, um, you know, encircling Russia in this zone of isolation could have limited impact on global markets? I think the only sector... Uh, and that's obviously the big elephant in the room, right? The only sector that's going to cause a lot of mayhem, and it already has in the markets, is the oil energy sector. I mean, Germany made a huge call by cancelling the pipeline. Uh, Europe gets roughly like 40% of its natural gas. Uh, uh, the source of its natural gas energy is from Russia. Pipeline's gone down. I, I mean, the, the fundamental issue is, Transferring, you know, any kind of energy, like physical assets from one country to the other, mm-hmm. there are like gazillion intermediaries in between, right? I mean, obviously you need like the buyer and seller to agree, but then post that you have the shipping guys and within shipping itself there are like 10 different uh, subsects of it. The owner, the charterer, you have financial intermediaries, uh, lines of credit, you have insurance companies who have to be willing to underwrite all of this risk. And that has been brought to a standstill, right? Even if there are no sanctions per se on this space, I mean, it takes like a couple of days to a couple of months for the energy asset to be transferred. If on in that time, suddenly a new sanction comes in mm. uh, or, you know, you just can't transfer the goods or how do you make payments for these things? Mm. Like when you lock down the financial underwriting infrastructure to be able to transfer money from one place to the other, and we, you know, keep coming back to SWIFT on that, it becomes like nobody sits and takes like $50 million of cash in which currency, right? Like how do they try and launder that money? The entire mechanics of transferring of goods from one place to the other becomes impossible Hmm. if the underlying financial ecosystem is gone. And that's exactly what's happened over here. So Russia is, I mean, again, depending on which report you look at, is either the second or the third largest exporter of uh, oil, right? And that's huge, or a producer of oil, sorry. And that's a a massive, I mean, the U.S. uh, is number one. Russia or Saudi Arabia is like number two or number three. So it's a huge player in the energy market. And basically no one is there willing to buy that oil, and we've seen that, like Ural's grade, which is basically the Russian equivalent, uh, mm. the, the Russian mode of uh, the grade of oil, Trafigura, like all these other really large physical players have been trying to sell this, even at way below market prices. There just aren't any bids for it because 
of the entire supply chain post buying it. It's not just a financial instrument, right? You literally need to take physical delivery of this. Right. And that entire ecosystem has been destroyed and thereby leading oil to like gallop to new highs on a daily basis, right? Sanctions so far not aimed at restricting oil though, right? Uh, US and Europe, they're not banning oil purchases from Russia. So why is it that oil prices are spiking so much? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, the, the, the sad fact is given the extent of, I don't know, call it PR, call it media coverage, call it uh, just the, the action of SWIFT and uh, freezing of the central bank assets, in a weird turn of events, nobody even needs to sanction the oil assets because of the underlying entire supply chain just completely getting frozen right now, even without sanctions, there is no way to actually physically transport this. I mean, there are a number of like tanker companies refuse to deal and to deal with Russia at all. It, it becomes a PR nightmare for any company to be dealing with Russia right now. Right. And we've seen this on the consumer front, right? Like Burberry, Apple, Nike, I mean, you can call it whatever excuse you want, right? Mm. Some some brands have come out saying, in solidarity with the Ukrainians, we're not going to be dealing uh, or we're going to exit this country. On the other hand, you've got people like Nike and Burberry coming out saying, because of supply chain issues, we physically actually can't get the goods into Russia, nor can we take payment for it. Because again, you don't know if you're breaking some sanction on the financial side. And that problem just, you know, exacerbates gazillion times when you're dealing with these these oil assets that have so many more intermediaries than the transfer of like a pair of sneakers from China to Russia. So when it comes to the energy markets, it's in complete mayhem right now. OPEC Plus uh, came out with a uh, report or, you know, they came out with their own uh, headlines a couple of days back in which they said they're not going to be increasing oil reserves by that much because they fundamentally believe the supply-demand currently uh, mismatch leading to the spike up in oil is more because of purely geopolitical conditions, not because of the underlying demand of oil increasing that much. I think OPEC's agreed, if I could just butt in here, um, hasn't OPEC agreed to a modest boost in its monthly supplies? 400,000 barrels a day, yeah. They have, but that was already agreed on well in advance of the geopolitical, before Russia invaded Ukraine. So the idea of like 400,000 barrels increasing step by step on a monthly basis and stuff, there has been no major change from what their view was prior to the attack. And they didn't even mention that attack in their news release, right? So then you had IEA coming out saying, they're going to release 60 million barrels of oil through their emergency stockpile release. But mm. again, right, like that's kind of like a drop in the ocean when it comes to just the amount of oil that Russia was pumping out. And now without any buyers for it, there is that huge drop in supply of oil in uh, the Western or freely floating markets. Mm-hmm. And that has to come from somewhere. IEA, sure, from a stopgap solution makes sense. But uh, I would think the U.S. would be applying a lot more pressure on Saudi Arabia right now to try to start in, you know, increasing up the release of oil a lot more than what they previously agreed on. 
maybe now is a good time to make that link between what's happening in the uh, oil markets, which I think strategists are looking at as you know the, the major point where we examine the reverberation of what's happening in Ukraine on global markets. Now, what does it mean for us here at home? We've heard that Singapore should be prepared for uh, electricity prices, uh, petrol prices to go up as the Ukraine prices pushes up global energy costs. Can you join the dots for us and help us understand um, why, you know, what's going on geopolitically will raise energy bills in Singapore? Right. So so one uh, issue I think that we have here in Singapore is that 95% of our energy comes from natural gas. And, uh, you know, as mentioned previously, Russia was obviously a huge supplier of natural gas to Europe. And if that's completely blocked in Europe, then all the underlying prices of all of these energy assets, oil, natural gas, the entire spectrum of that carbon-related energy assets has been spiking up and will continue to spike up until there's uh, either a huge resolution of this uh, geopolitical issue, which does not seem likely anytime soon. Either OPEC comes out saying they're going to massively increase supply, which sadly doesn't seem to be likely either. So for the foreseeable future, we are seeing the entire carbon asset segment prices increase a lot. So when you have that situation, especially when we come back to Singapore, and most of our uh, energy source is natural gas, naturally electricity prices will increase. I mean, I know there's a lot more chatter around now uh, within uh, our country regarding nuclear, solar, wind, you know, all sorts of renewable energies as well as nuclear. But these things sadly don't happen with, you know, the snap of fingers and suddenly a nuclear reactor or something comes up over here, right? Like Mm. these things take like a five or 10 year lag period to ensure safety, supply chains, et cetera, being set up. So from that aspect, just sadly, there just doesn't seem to be any out other than the government, which has already has announced in its previous budget, you know, coming to the support of uh, people who are more affected by this, uh, slightly lower down in the economic strata of society, coming up with some kind of grants and uh, discounts and stuff, especially when it pertains to electricity bills. But oh. sadly, as of right now, looking into the near, you know, near future horizon, uh, there is just no choice. When you have your massive source of oil producing, oil exporting, natural gas exporting country basically shut off from the rest of the world, we will see a pretty decent hike up in prices as we have been seeing in the past couple of months, even before this geopolitical issue, even the supply demand mismatch. Okay, let's keep on this track of looking at what's happening in Ukraine and its possible impact on individuals, even everyday investors. Now, some stock funds allocate some 10% of their assets to Russia, according to Morningstar. Bond funds relatively more subdued, about 45 to 8% to Russian debt. Um, so most, if you're in, invested in a mutual fund or an ETF, you may probably be largely insulated from financial exposure to Russia because uh, according to CNBC, fund managers who buy Russian debt or Russian company stock tend to do so in small quantities. But there are stock funds uh, with big exposure to Russia, the iShares MSCI Russia ETF, for example, 95% of that portfolio has Russian exposure. Van Egg Russia ETF, you know, given its name, I think you get a, a sense, a clue as to its exposure to Russia, right? Uh, GQG part. Partners, emerging markets, equity, R6, and so on and so forth. Uh, Arun, what can investors who do have exposure to Russia, they have Russia on their books, what can they do now? 
Sadly, <laughs> I've been praying not so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, right, like uh, Russia as an emerging market team was quite strong if you go back a couple of years. I mean, this whole BRIC concept, right, like Brazil, Russia, India, China. And back when I was in investment banking days, hmm. the number of structured notes and stuff that we sold that involved like these brick baskets and exposure, be it into the FX or into equity indices of Russia, et cetera. I wouldn't say it was massive, but still it was a decent, uh, you know, chunk of uh, capital that was going into this space because everyone thought that things have settled down right now, uh, post the Crimea invasion and stuff, it was going to go back to being okay. This sadly turned everything completely lopsided, right? I mean, coming back to the... Uh, like this SBER bank listed in, in uh, LSE, when it goes down 99% over like a couple of days, there's really not much you can do about it, right? I mean, the share mm-hmm. price of that was being compared to Lehman Brothers' share price right before it went bankrupt. You have, uh, I mean, look at all the oil majors, BP. I mean, even if you're not exposed to Russia directly by buying its underlying ETF, then obviously, you know, you're basically sitting down 40, 50, 70%. Who knows what that amount is finally. But even if you have exposure to certain uh, really large energy conglomerates, BP, Rosneft, uh, the partnership, Shell, Exxon, all of these guys have no choice but to, I mean, they can say in headlines that they're looking to offload their assets, et cetera, but it's kind of like a, part of the euro's grade oil, right? Who's going to be sitting on the bid mm. other than maybe some, maybe the Russian, uh, some kind of Russian bank or an oligarch who is based in Russia, but they'll be buying it this like cents on the dollar, right? If that, and, and even then, how does the money come back into these companies' balance sheet? Does that breach some certain sanctions that you're, even if you're taking a hike out of 90%, is that 10 cents on the dollar still money laundering or getting it away from a sanctioned country? It's really, really complicated at this moment because there, it, it still is quite uncertain how this entire thing is going to pan out, especially when it comes to clearing off your financial assets for these large companies. So from the perspective of an investor, it becomes doubly difficult because you're kind of getting whacked by both sides. If you have direct Russian exposure, huge problem. Mm. If you have an exposure into some of these oil names, which would have been a pretty good hedge, to be honest. Mm. But if you have exposure to oil via these individual names, you don't exactly know how this, you know, eventual dilution or elimination of partnership with their Russian uh, subsidiaries is going to take place and what effect that's going to have on the balance sheet. So as of right now, you know, the few hedges that I can only see is mm. literally the underlying physical uh, goods of be it oil, natural gas, etc., getting into either their ETFs, getting into futures or something, which is a little bit more complicated for retail investors. Mm-hmm. But that would pretty much be the only subset I would see that can try and protect one's portfolio and potentially uh, energy transportation stocks that have also seen a nice run up in the past couple of weeks. It's hard, isn't it, to figure out the sort of impact on, on individual investors. I don't know if you know, but Ukraine has a Twitter page. Have you seen Ukraine's Twitter page? I have not. It has quite a voice 
It's hilarious. <laughs> it's a little bit witty and sarcastic. Uh, anyway, so I learned from the Ukraine um, Twitter page, the official page, that European, American and British companies still make $700 million daily trading with Russia. So there are all these oil and you know, manufacturers and retailers, all, I, I think, feeling pressure to stop financing this war, cutting ties uh, you know, with Russia. And what impact could that have on their companies then and then the rest of us? Yeah. I mean, absolutely spot on. I wasn't familiar with the page, but just generally, like overall looking at their PR campaign around how the the Ukrainian president, the mayors of the cities, like you name it, right? The way they've come out in social media and mm. really drummed up moral support as, and economic support to a very large extent, going across the world, showing pictures of devastation that this aggression has caused and basically coercing companies across the board, right? Like uh, from, they, they were thought, they were cheering Elon Musk for getting Starlink uploaded over there. And that and he did. Gives, and he did. On the and, same and day. Exactly. And, and the pressure that that causes Google and Apple and other tech players to basically stop services in Russia uh, you know, expand free stuff in Ukraine. Like Uber now has a free service for anyone who wants to cross uh, Ukraine into Poland. And every company now has to step up to the plate because, you know, millions of other Vogue, call it investors, call it consumers, they're basically shouting on LinkedIn right now saying, if you have any kinds of ties with Russia, you have to clamp them down and put the poster child as Elon Musk or other tech players who've now been following suit. You have no choice as a corporate right now, right? So from that perspective, fantastic PR campaign by the entire Ukraine government, its people yeah. across all social media channels, right? And that's naturally going to have an effect on energy players, especially because Russia still had a very large percentage of their, be it assets or profitability. Not so much when it comes to cars or other consumer goods. I mean, there was a statistic of UK only having, I think, 1% of cars in the UK were being exported to Russia. Hmm. So it doesn't really make a difference, right? Just from the perspective of what's going to be hit to your bottom line. But energy majors, completely different story, sadly. Well said, and I couldn't agree with you more on the very effective social media campaign from Ukraine and its effects there. Now, let's turn our attention a little closer to home and take a look at stocks. Stocks in Hong Kong, I mean, they hit a two-year low when we saw Russian sanctions widening. Uh, in fact, when it comes to Hong Kong, it saw heavy selling since the Ukraine crisis came to a head down 8.4% since February 17th, a couple of days back. That was uh, that was before Russian troops even moved into Ukraine. So your read of the outlook for the Hong Kong market, I'm going to keep it broad, um, even though today we're waking up to the fact that China seems to be reassessing its support for you know, Vladimir Putin to some extent. Um, but your general read of the outlook and potential factors affecting the Hong Kong market. I mean, from a pure value perspective, it definitely seems to be a stock exchange or a sector where I'd be looking to increase my exposure at present. Contingent to a couple of things, depending on the China-Russia uh, political fallout occurs, but there are some really strong balance sheet companies listed in Hong Kong where you know it's very tough to avoid. It, there might be value traps, obviously, but it becomes a bit too attractive of fundamentals to see 
uh, to try and at least increase exposure. I think the the geopolitical issue is one big thing, and I think the whole reaction to COVID uh, on the back of, uh, you know, directions from the motherland, China, has caused a huge complication just within the entire financial ecosystem there, right? And I would like to think things have become that bad in the past, like a week on with like over 50, 60,000 cases. And don't get me wrong, Singapore has like 20,000 cases, but it's a completely different approach over here where the government is actively trying to tell people, look, this is not the end of the world. You have COVID, stay at home. It's all going to be fine. Hong Kong is dealing with a completely different issue of this whole, you know, zero cases policy coupled with Stemming from, you know, like the last couple of years even, where the population genuinely did not trust the government, which led to especially people who were more vulnerable not taking the vaccine. I think there was some statistic of people over the age of 50 or 60. Hmm. Vaccination rates are like in the similar percentages, like 50-60% as compared to where it should be for, you know, over 90%, right? Like in the case of, say, Singapore and other uh, developed markets. So I think that's caused a huge headwind just in general in terms of how people look at Hong Kong. So many expats and people that I knew in banking have moved uh, to either Singapore or to the Middle East uh, to continue, uh, you know, their work and their functioning. And that's led to a, a big drop, I would say, in the way the world is perceiving Hong Kong right now as an international center. That being said, though, uh, you know, at the end of the day, China is a gigantic economy, extremely strong. I, I still personally believe extremely strong middle class fundamentals for the long run. So, you know, getting involved in certain spaces, which are agreeable by the Chinese government to a very large extent, because we've seen the issues in the education space, etc., mm. uh, where the government's come clamping down. And we talked a lot about that, too. Uh, you know, avoiding certain hot areas where the government is not uh, a big fan or a supporter of. I think there is enough interesting pockets of value there where investors should be taking a look at. That's very interesting. First time I've heard that here on this show. Thank you very much, Arun, for joining us. My pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. This is Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.